All right, let's see if I got all my ducks in a row here. We got quack, 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 there. Oh no, we got quack. We got open up. Quack, 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 quack. So, so the Sky Broncos captured third place in the national championship. Did you hear this? Isn't this cool? This the Sky Broncos. What is this? I never knew. All right, so apparently. <laughs> well, I'm excited. Yeah, no, I never realized this. Western Michigan's precision flight team, Sky oh, Broncos. Oh, the NEFA competition. I never yeah. knew this kind of thing existed. So you're trying to tell me that there are, like, competitive flying teams? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, oh, tell, yeah, tell me more about this. How does this work? Jeff, Jeff, we just slightly out of sync on that. Could we try that one more time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, tell me about. I'm really curious about this. This is awesome. I never heard. I never heard of this before. Yeah, it's precision flying. They have to plan and they have to do things in, in at least one sort of competition. I know all predict exactly how much fuel they're going to burn off and exactly how much time and oh, hit exactly they, they the have, points. They have power off landing competitions. They have uh, spot landing competitions. Uh, navigation. Uh, you know where time, distance, fuel. All of that stuff comes into play. They have knowledge tests, uh, quizzes. Uh, it's a, a two- or three-day competition. I, yep. I'm trying to remember. It just ended recently. That's why. It, That's it why we're talking me. about it. That's right. This Scott is right. Broncos <laughs> came in third place, and I got a release on them. I didn't get a release on first and second, which strikes well, me as odd. As if I was first or second. Well, Sky Broncos apparently got better PR than whoever... I would say so. Sky Broncos, you may have come in third in the in, in the National Intercollegiate Flying Competition, but uh, uh, brothers, you sisters, you came in first place in the uh, Make the Media Aware contest. Let's see. Lower in the story, we're looking at a story here from uh, GeneralAviationNews.com's uh, uh, excellent news blog, uh, where they uh, they uh, bring to the surface a lot of stories that we might have missed, um, and. Uh, Although this seems to be a story they wrote. This is an original story for them, actually. Uh, later in the story, it talks about, uh, it says, this year the University of North Dakota took first place and uh, Embry-Riddle. See, that's why Sky Broncos is the story. Because you would expect Embry-Riddle and, uh, and, and North Dakota to, Not necessarily. to be strong. Well, well you, you, um, SIU has won in the past. Uh, Air Force Academy is one in the past. So how um, are there a lot of schools that field such a team? Read the read the third graph. Uh, the six day competition attracted 20, more than twenty eight teams. Twenty eight teams, three hundred pilots. Uh, yeah. Each school earned the right to compete at nationals by winning or placing second in an in a regional competition. Among the other schools represented at this year's national championship were the U.S. Air Force Academy, Kent State, Ohio, uh, San Jose State. Southern Illinois University and uh, the universities of Central Missouri and Illinois. This is cool. I never knew such a thing existed. We're going to have to follow up on this somehow. I wonder where the nearest regional is that I can go to next year. Well, the you know you go to check uh, with the Parks NEPA College. Website. Yeah, check check with Parks College. They're traditionally the organizers behind this. Well, we got a big um, Daniel Webster is a big uh, aviation school. Here. Yeah, oh, that's right. Here in New well, Hampshire, I'm surprised that uh, you know. I wonder if uh, Tom Norton caught any hell for this from uh, from Ben 
Sclair after he looked at it, Ben being a UND alumni. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's a, that's part of the explanation. Then uh, we got a little thing going on here. All right, we'll, we'll have to ask when we see them in a couple weeks or a couple months. But in, you know, it's bears pointing out here too that the uh, the the folks from Western Michigan University, the Sky Broncos, this was their 18th consecutive top four finish. Very cool. Wow. That's great. And and I like the name, the Sky Bronco. You kind of see them sitting astride the, you know, the, one, the warrior. <laughs> Maybe that's their logo, huh? <laughs> you ever flown an airplane that bucked like a Bronco? I've been in air that felt did like you a say, Bronco. Did you say bucked? <laughs> I didn't That'll say do. bucked. That'll do. That'll do. Hey. <laughs> The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Welcome, folks, to episode 138 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Chickens with a speech impediment. We're recording this episode on uh, Wednesday. Once upon a time, when we reached this point in the podcast, Jeb and Dave used to be respectful and quiet. No longer. Uh, we're recording this episode on Wednesday, June 3rd, 2009. I just, I just realized that sounded very uh, very uh, uh, passive-aggressive of me, didn't it? We're uh, uh, June, Wednesday, June 3rd, 2009. Yes, mother. And joining me here in the virtual hangar this week is uh, Dave Higdon's out there. Dave's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Dave. I promise I won't do it again until the next time. Yeah, I know. Exactly. It's okay. I like it. But uh, it is different. It is different. Uh, what's going on out there? Uh, well, you know we're, uh, we're 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 still feeling the effects of uh, of a down market in the aviation business, but get to see more of it. We've had some nice weather. Uh, the CAF got their UC seventy uh, eight up and running. Uh, that's making some rounds. It's, what's a UC seventy eight? A UC seventy eight is a uh, U.S. Army Air Corps version of the Cessna Bobcat, the T fifty Bobcat. Ah, uh-huh. okay, cool. Cool. Is the airplane Scott King first flew? Yes. When the series came on the air. Okay. Big also, the, the bamboo before bomber. The three, yeah, before yeah, the three ten was developed. Where did it get the name bamboo bomber? What's the, is there bamboo? Did it was built out of bamboo? I don't know. Is it? I thought it was made out of plywood or something. Oh, so they kind of called it that as a. No, it's, it's metal. It, it either had to do just, with um, seats um, made out of bamboo, which is which can be very light and very strong. Or it had to do with um, some of the uses to which it was put um, in, um, you know, like um, uh, the Pacific Rim. Ah, okay, okay. Hey, also with us here this week in the hangar is Jeb Burnside. I, think, I don't know. And, I don't know. Uh, I'm just making stuff up. I know. No, it's okay. That's, that's all we ever do. Jeb's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. Hey, how you doing, Jack? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So, uh, what's good. going on in your world these days? You somewhere, somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, has been pretty, pretty normal summer Florida weather. It's been hot, humid, and a little rain shower every now and then. It's nice and cool outside right now. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, so you guys still haven't. When we were down there for Sun and Fun, they were complaining about the fact that the drought had been going on, and then in the we couple of weeks like after, a week and a half, we got like a week and a half of rain. Yeah, did that officially and end the drought? Every, or everything's it? that, as far as I'm concerned, it did. Everything's green and needs to be mowed. Um, <laughs> That's but, your uh, definition of <laughs> drought versus no, no drought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's been nice down here. I, I got an email earlier today from someone in Oshkosh saying they were expecting frost tonight. Mm. And I find that just... Uh, oh, really, and you're not talking about a television personality. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I find that just really whacked for, for early June. I'm sorry. Well, we want to report later on because I want to know if you well, – it's getting gotten fairly chilly up here recently. We haven't actually gotten a frost. but uh, it's, it's, it's been nice down here. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's hot in the middle of the day. Uh-huh, yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're working outside, you know, sweat's just rolling off of you. But – you know, in the evenings, it's nice and it's great. It yeah. really is. Yeah. But anyway, enough about me. And also joining us this week is uh, James Winbrandt, who's uh, I believe is joining us from the Big Apple, New York City. Is that where you are, James? I am. I'm back in New York, and yeah. uh, it is cool up here. I was kind of surprised. I've had to wear uh, kind of a light jacket the last couple of days. It's mm-hmm. been sort of enjoyable that way. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't. You know, hot or cold doesn't bother me. It's humidity that bothers me. But. Uh, mm. Um, Al, Al Gore, please pick up the white courtesy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> James, I don't know if I've ever asked you this. Um, without giving up too much personal information, what part of New York City do you live in? What I live in downtown Manhattan. Uh-huh. Okay. Is that... Uh, Houston Bowery area, okay. if you're familiar with... Vaguely. That's where NYPD Blue was, right? Uh, I don't know. Sorry, stumped you there. But <laughs> but uh, Law and Order, you would see them filming in the streets here sometimes. Uh, okay, all right. Well, there you go. So now we know, we've now referenced you by by television show. Okay. Let's <laughs> see now. Jeb would be uh, CSI Florida or something like that, and Dave would be well. There's that old business jet d- documentary that he was in. So I don't know. This metaphor is breaking down real fast. I'm, I made more. <laughs> I made another. I made another video or finished one up. Yeah. So, so we're going to identify you by. No, I don't know if that works either. I'm Jack yeah, Hodgson. <laughs> I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from the home office in Dover, New Hampshire. I'm always reminded Je- Je- of. Je- Jeb, yeah. did you guys ever do the video? That's what. I, that's what. I, that was what I was talking about. We just was, finished was that, that up today. One? Is that the one you yeah. finished? Yeah. It? Well, what? Now you got to tell us. Share with the whole oh, class. Um, when Dave was down, uh, right after Sun and Fun, uh, Bertarelli and I. Uh, spent a morning um, testing portable tie-down anchors Okay, out in front of my hangar um, and, you know, trying to figure out which of the commercial kits and which of the um, the hardware store type of anchors work best. Uh-huh. And um, this was for an article in uh, the June Aviation uh, Consumer Issue. And um, we did a video at the time we were doing it. Um, we shot video of it, and then for a variety of different reasons, had to move on to other stuff. And we finally today finished shooting the video we need for that that um, that report, and um, it'll be up on the web, you know, in a few days. Cool, mm, cool. But Dave, Dave was down and, and saw the oversaw the. Uh, uh, helped out a lot and uh, and whatnot. That's that's what we're talking about. We just finally finished that. 
I can't I help though. I was a production assistant. Uh, okay. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, we're finding your calling eventually. Uh, I can't help but note that uh, so Dave was sort of uh, teasing us last week about the fact that he had been doing some uh, reviews or demos or demo flights or some some high tech gadgetry that he said he's going to write about and tell us about later on. Uh, and Jeb, you're you're testing tie down ropes. Low tech. Well, yeah. Low tech. That's right. Um, you know we can go out and buy all of the fancy new airplanes we want, but when it comes right down to it, at the end of the day, you still have to tie them down. Fair point, fair point. Hey, James, so what are you doing? We haven't talked to you in a while. What what have you been working on? Uh, I've been doing a bunch of writing of different things, a lot of aviation work and some web work and some other things, and uh, just left Florida, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to get on to you for that because, you know, you come down for several months, you're an hour away, and you, you don't come see me, and well, I don't come I see wasn't, you. you know? I wasn't but, an hour away because I didn't have my airplane. Yeah, so now I just heard about this. You're going to have to fill us in here. Your airplane's been down for a while, but now it's up again. What's going that's on? That's correct. Uh, right before I left the northeast here for Florida... I had a leak uh, in the fuel pump, and so had to get that taken care of. My aircraft has a kind of persnickety engine, uh, a Continental TSIO 360 MB, and it is very particular about a num- number of things. And it's, you know, has uh, pressurized mags and a whole bunch of things on it that you don't find on every engine. And apparently it is very particular about the kind of fuel pump that goes on there. And I should not have sent mine out an exchange for an exchange in, uh-huh. in, uh, in hopes of doing a quick turnaround and getting out of the Northeast, which I had grown weary of with all the cold weather. I should have sent mine in for uh, overhaul, but I didn't. I wasn't getting sufficient fuel flow uh, on the on the flight down to Florida. I had to stop there, look at it. Uh, they saw right away that there was something unserviceable, that some screw that was not part of a fitting but was used for some things was stripped. So that had to go back anyway. Uh, it was a uh, second one came. That one wasn't working properly. It was sent to a third-party shop that found the aneroid seal was broken in it, and therefore it was unserviceable. But that really was not the issue. Uh, and then they got a yet the third fuel pump, and it was Jeez. supposedly all to spec. It wasn't working right. It went back. The shop checked it. Everything was to spec. Uh and it was not delivering sufficient fuel. And when they would have me go and do these test flights, I would get in and I would know right away because at 1,000 RPM, it yeah. was giving me the fuel flow that is where I lean back to. And it mm-hmm. gave a, a, was a little rich in, at full power. And everything else with the throttle pulled back, it was running uh, too lean. 
uh, to areas where I might want to lean back to, but there's no room to do anything with, and too hot in the climb where I'm used to having a very cool running engine. I was going to ask, you know, what, some, what about your CHTs? CHTs are always low in, in, in that engine. And they really? were Yes, and they were remain low at this. Yes. You know, it's, it's <clears throat> a point like this where a body begins to wonder whether there might be an issue with the fuel flow upstream of the pump so that it's not getting the head that it needs to produce the output. I mean, after that many pumps, uh, you know, well, setting aside all... the one with a broken aneroid, I mean, mm-hmm. it, that wouldn't have worked on any airplane. Well, there's all sorts of things that go on. There are pressure decks that could be leaking. Those were all checked. There's a controller. Even that went out to be checked at some point. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, everything was checked, rechecked. Uh, Down at Sun and Fun, I saw the guys at, at TCM Continental. Now, this is an engine that has not been produced for 20 years, Right. Mooney hasn't put it in an airplane in close to that amount of time, I guess. Yeah, yeah they, so. put a, they put another version of the TSIO 360 mm-hmm. recently. Is, uh, well, uh, the, the Encore. 18 years ago. Yeah, yeah. the Encore. The Encore. That, that was but, the last one. Uh, but not quite the same. So, uh, so you don't even have the reservoir of knowledge that you might hope for at these companies to know what's going on. And I called all the, sh- you know, the shops that I've dealt with over the years. And then at Sun and Fun, I also ran into Coy Jacob, uh, who, through whose company I bought the airplane from 10 years ago. And right. he knows quite about them. He has done, he was converting a lot of Mooney 231s into what were called uh, 262s, which essentially they took out the, I guess, the LB or GB engine and replaced it with the MB, mm. with the uh, automatic wastegate. Uh, right, and it's the engine that they put in the Encore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I to- told him, and he said, it's the fuel pump. You've got the wrong fuel pump. And I said, but we've checked it out. We've gone through Continental, you know, the dash number. He said, it's the wrong fuel pump. And he said, I don't care if, if it, they say it's right. Even if they checked it, it could have the wrong metering valve inside their, or metering rod inside. Or There's all these things. He tells me the people at the companies wow. that do these overhauls don't know what they're doing. And besides that, this is a very particular engine. It's mm-hmm. and that's my problem, and I need the mm-hmm. right. And he said, but you know, and by the way, he had one tagged, bagged, and sitting in oil precisely for this reason. Hmm. And like where other people, you know, there's two pressure settings for yeah. this engine. There's the high right. and the low. And right. other people, you know, are telling me, no, they just yes, the the factory says it's six point two five to six point seven five. PSI coming through there but if you look at the service bullet notes it says that's only a recommendation they have to boost it higher and in fact somebody told me that from uh, from a northern latitude and when I told Coy he said yeah well where are they you know what's going to happen if they try and do that in a hot day you're going to get too much fuel in there and it's going to quit on you you got the wrong fuel pump Yikes. Uh, so what so, yeah so it took about, I, of course, was passing all this information along to the 
uh, maintenance facility, that we, which was equally frustrating. I'd already told them I don't want to be paying for your learning curve. James, here. James, who was the maintenance facility? Uh, it was a, a Southeast Arrow. Okay. And, and they where were are they? Very, They're in St. Augustine? Augustine. And they worked very hard, and they definitely, you know, we worked out, uh, when all was said and done, something that I thought was fair, and they thought was fair given, you know, so, what was unforeseen. So, so they got it, it back in service now? So uh, three weeks after that, after passing on, they, he finally, the service manager finally did call Coy. Coy talked to him. And the service manager called me, said, well, I think that he's probably right. Ne- next day, the, he sent over the fuel pump he talked about. They put it on. Case closed. Really? <laughs> now, really? Now. Yeah. So this guy gave you his precious spare fuel pump. He sold it to me, but it a, a, a very, you know, the alternative was to buy a brand new one from Continental. Well, clearly we should go into the business of finding these fuel pumps and... I was going to say, boy, I'd sure have a feeler That's, out for any salvage shop that might ever come up with one and, and you know, put it in a foam line box and keep it on the yeah. hat shelf. Yeah. 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 Well, if, again, it's, lesson, if it's that hard to find the right right pump or the right configured pump, mm-hmm. yeah, I would go get a spare. Yeah. Yeah. And one lesson here, again, is that uh, from what the expert advice I've heard along the way was that really – these things that you get that come yellow tagged, you really don't know how good they are. The the, uh, the people that put them together are not always the most sophisticated aviation professionals. What is when it? I go ahead? What's that? No, go ahead. When I talk to uh, the facility up that I deal with here, where I'm based, that's done a lot of Mooney work. And the, when I told them this initially, the first question is, is, is it from, and they mentioned a pretty high profile component manufacturer. And, and I said, no, he said, oh, because once we went through six alternators of theirs before we got a good one, they could, they make them all up at once. Right, right. If somebody does it wrong on one, they do it wrong on all of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, what I was going to ask is, uh, for people who don't know, what does yellow tag mean? That means when something is sent in for overhaul, for, for repair, whatever, and it is then certified as being serviceable. Is that correct, Dave? <clears throat> that's, that's basically that's, correct. That's yeah. Only only certain uh, certificate holders can sign that uh, yellow tag, though. Mm, yeah. And it's called like an 8130-something or other. Um, generally, and... In, in, we can talk about this, and we can get a lot of uh, informed guests on, too. Generally, when you're dealing with a repair station, and you might be dealing with a repair station, James, um, the people running it are certified um, mm-hmm. or have, have certificates. The people AMPs. doing the work may not have uh, FAA certificates. They just may be technicians. Uh, and, uh, you know, but the, the repair station has to stand behind that work. What do you mean by mm-hmm. now? Okay, we're getting what do you mean by repair station then? Repair station is a. How is that different from just an A&P who's got a shingle hanging? An A&P, um, certain kinds of components, you know, an A&P can approve for return to service. Um, but he can't overhaul them. Ah, I see. Because okay. of the, reg- the way the regulations will work. Things there's, like prop governors, fuel pumps come to mind. Um, you know, Lee can't um, uh, overhaul. He, you know, he can he can take it apart, put it back together, but he can't certify it as overhaul. Only a repair station or a manufacturer really can do that. I see. 
Okay. And you got repair station certificates for everything from yeah. avionics to gyros, yeah. uh, instruments, uh, you know, the, the alt, your altimeter airspeed indicator, vertical speed indicator, uh, anything pretty much that has a specific TSO area uh, yeah. has a, has a uh, repair station requirement for it. And who certifies and, them, the feds or the original manufacturer? The FAA. Feds. Okay. Yeah. The feds. And the certificate holder, you know, is responsible for inspecting and signing off on them, even if they don't do the hands-on work. It's like an A&P or an IA that has, you know, non-licensed help in the shop. Non-licensed help can do a lot of stuff, but ultimately it's the job, the responsibility, and the liability of the person with the license and the serial number to go with it to check that work. And to sign it off as, as airworthy or serviceable, you know, ready to, to, to get back into the sky. So yeah, yeah. only an A and P though, how, however, A and P or IA can um, verify, if you will, the airworthiness uh, <clears throat> when he or she installs it in the airplane. Right. Okay. And, yeah. Or sign, signs the you know they, they, they inspect it. They make sure it's the it's the approved part for the for the application, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they can't do the work on the part. Um, technically, they well, you know, technically they can work on it, but they can't uh, overhaul it. They can't, you know. Yeah, it's like our our, our static check and the yeah. keep, uh, keeping in mind check. keeping in mind that the term overhaul has a specific meaning, yeah. as opposed to inspect and repair as necessary. Interesting. But if you want to. If you want to fly legal in the system, do IFR work, you got to have a transponder check every two years, an altimeter check, and a pedo and static system check. Uh, good A and P in the field can, with the right equipment, can do the the uh, static system check right there on the site. But unless they've got the, the the training, the certificate, and the equipment, they can't do the transponder check. They can, however, take it out and deliver it to somebody who can. Right. And same way for pressure testing uh, the accuracy of the altimeter. Uh, unless they've got the equipment, the training, and the certificate to say they can do that, that's got to be sent out to somebody who can. Right. But then they're allowed to put it back in the airplane, hook it up, and sign it off as, you know, in the airplane. Yeah, I see. I see. So, but James, what... I told that the, the fuel pump is one component that would pretty much have to go to some specialty shop. Yeah. Okay. So what's the what's the lesson here, oh, yeah. James? What's the lesson learned here? How now do you are, are have you have you a strategy now to head off this kind of thing in the future? Well, for one thing, I will not send out a fuel pump or other component for exchange. I will have to get them overhauled. Mm-hmm. And well, at least I, this specific component. Yes, and uh, you know if if the turbocharger or something has to be overhauled or something at some point, I. I would, first of all, I think I would go and, and call Coy and tell him what, because he's worked on these engines so much, and I'd say, what do you think of this or that next time, instead uh-huh. of uh, just kind yeah. of do, taking what seems like the obvious uh, direction to go in. Yeah, I'd call the manufacturer. Well, that's, well, yeah. the, that's the problem here. Well, they were not even able to tell us whether... The dash number, because you have these part numbers, and then, yeah, that's what, but a different dash and letter after it. They weren't even able to tell whether one was correct or not, really. 
Hmm. And uh, and the as I That's was wrong. mentioning, the That's institutional wrong. knowledge yeah, there, wrong there. Yeah, yeah the something's wrong there. For sure. is, is gone. And uh, when I was talking to the people at TCM at Sun and Fun and explaining my problem and my frustration, and they were saying, "No, we don't think you're crazy." They knew that they uh, the head of maintenance there, and they've worked with him. And they think, you know, they tell me, "Oh, he mm-hmm. knows what he's doing." So everybody's sort of shrugging and throwing their hands up, and they weren't really able to, as I say, provide the kind of help they might have twenty years ago when they were still making that engine. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Local so knowledge. So it's, it's, it's serviceable and ready for you to pick up and fly to New Jersey. What is? Your airplane. Your airplane's already back in the air, right? It's back, yes. I got it oh, back. Oh, okay. Like, I'm sorry. I misunderstood there. Just, yeah. yeah, right before. But the whole time I was in Florida. You were without I, your airplane? I, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, man. I drove to Sun and Fun. Oh, well. Uh, well, I'm I, glad I, you got I, it back. Well, I did, too, for that matter. But I'm glad you got it I back. I didn't realize that it had been down for your entire winter. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember, I remember you talking about it at Sun and Fun, um, and I remember I, I uh, put you and Lee together. Yeah, and um, I, I didn't follow up with Lee. I know he got busy on some other projects, and mm-hmm. I, I, he didn't say he never said anything about it. But I was kind of surprised uh, uh, that it went on that long. I'm sorry to hear that, man. Yeah. yeah. Moving on. I know Ed Beals, man, had one down for six six months once. Mm. Ouch! Ouch! Moving on here, um, let's see. So, uh, big uh, the the big aviation story over the past few days has been the uh, well, it was disappearance. It's starting to uh, to reappear of uh, of Air France Flight four four seven from. Uh, yeah, there's it, it disappeared. There's evidence of where it disappeared. They're they're finding debris now. Um, yeah, they're as, finding as, as we speak, and, and uh, there's like a twenty seven foot square piece of metal floating in the ocean they've found and you know it doesn't have a registration number on it but it's pretty clear right well and they found other things they found pieces of apparently yeah. found pieces of seats and yeah. you know they found the thing i find interesting uh, or notable anyways was uh, apparently they found multiple debris fields spread apart yes which that's doesn't that's, that suggest that, that it really broke up in that's the air a big uh, $64,000 question one report i read said two debris fields uh, and, and and I'm doing this from memory, but the report I read said 35 miles apart. Yeah. So that suggests an in-flight breakup, right? It su- yeah, suggests and, and a very high altitude, read, high speed in-flight breakup. Yeah. I, the I first the, I read. Go ahead, James. The first one I read about that said the debris field, it was at the moment, at that time, a debris field was almost three miles long. Right. And And then... Reading about one. it being multiple debris fields uh-huh. stretched out over, you know, 40, 45 miles altogether. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, oh, my God is right. Yeah, um, I guess. Oh, my God. Those people had a terrible ride down. Well, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, they're at 35,000 feet. And well, at, even at 10,000 feet per minute, you're talking three and a half minutes on the way down. Yeah, but if yeah, this thing I hope broke it up, depressurized. I hope it depressurized at thirty-five thousand feet, and they were, you know, went unconscious as quickly. I would as imagine possible. that's the case, and then and it probably broke up pretty soon in the process. And well, that, that, they were that's put what out of we're going to have to wait to find out because, uh, in in looking some of the weather information and some of the uh, analysis that's been uh, cranked out so far, talking about some weather conditions out there that were producing. Vertical uh, up and vertical down air movements of 
80 knots and better at times. Yeah. Well, and put a couple of those close together, an 80 knot up followed very closely by an 80 knot down. Uh, oh, my God, you got a 160 knot shear line there on a heavily loaded airplane. Uh, it's just staggering to think about the loads imposed across the wing on that. And I, I don't know whether anything that they can test for would, would, would carry it out to that degree. Why would they fly into that? Well, we don't know that they did. That's that's part of the we problem. Don't know here. that they did. It yeah. may not. They may not have flown into it, Jack. It may have. It may have uh, uh, bloomed. It may have come into existence right around them or right on top of them. Uh huh. You know, it yeah. wasn't there 15 minutes ago. Now it is, and we're part in of the, the part of the problem day. is th- these rapidly growing storms, and this one was a young one, according to some of the the material I've come across, this particular uh, uh, area of cells was was young as far as you as you consider the the stages of a thunderstorm. Young means it's building and young means a lot of updrafts. Yeah. Um, and that's where you get uh, some of the most violent activity. A mature thunderstorm on the other hand is one that that's that's where rain begins at the surface. Uh, it's mostly downdrafts as opposed to updrafts. Yeah, um, things are but, well, hang, but hang on, hang on a second. We don't know much about anything right now. All we no. know is the airplane is down, and there was some lousy weather in the area. Um, it's, you know, I remember um, someone asking me the night T-Way eight hundred crashed. You know, I said, "Look, Boeing seven forty sevens just don't explode in the midair." Yeah. Uh, this one kind of sort of did, but there's a technical reason for it to have occurred. The same thing is going to be true, we're going to find eventually with this Airbus 330, that there was a series of events uh, that happened in the wrong, at the wrong time, in the wrong place, and in yeah. the wrong sequence mm-hmm. that brought down this airplane. So and they're going to move. They're going to move. Two things, yeah. two, two things really stick out for me here. Uh, one, now that, that, that's a trans-oceanic aircraft operating that regularly. It's equipped with HF radio. It's equipped uh, with everything. It's equipped with everything. So they've got a channel through which that they can talk uh, if they've got the time to uh, invest in, in, in that communication. The second thing is that the last heard from the aircraft was a burst of different telemetry messages yeah, I found that pretty interesting. I didn't realize talking about failures of of different systems on the aircraft yep. and coming these, rapidly, very close these together. Were, these were a cars messages sent right. as routine. Um, routine being that a cars messages are automatically generated by the aircraft and sent uh, to the mothership. Right. Um, right. They required no these, no crew input. Right. These messages detailed various system failures over about a four minute period. Those system failures included um, the uh, attitude and the air data computer and and some of the cockpit instrumentation. Really, I thought. Um, okay. Uh, well, the well, uh, the final message, and and you know, it's it's hard to glean a lot of this from the popular media coverage, but the the final messages detailed um, losing cabin pressure and some kind of a short circuit, which doesn't make any sense to me. Um, Why not? But the, the short circuit thing, failure. 
It was well, I understand that. I understand that part. But uh, you know, unless uh, why aren't they? So they aren't saying which circuit was failed or shorted, and that's what gives me pause. Saying, "Well, okay, what does that mean? It doesn't really mean anything." Well, are we talking about the overhead cabin lighting circuit? Or are we talking about something else? Well, uh, I, I, but, but that that was the last message received, apparently. And that's what got people onto this early speculation about there being a lightning strike. Yeah. James, what there may just... well have been a lightning strike, but yeah. I don't think that that's the the uh, going to be determined to be. I was say a lightning airplanes like that have survived lightning strikes many times in the past. Right, right. James, what were you going to say? Yes, James, I was going to to uh, say I don't know either about any of this. That what it seemed from the accounts I read that there. The burst of messages that were uh, received from the aircraft indicated a series of, if not individually catastrophic failures, certainly something culminating in a catastrophic failure. I have no idea myself what could have caused it, but I think that this is uh, an order of magnitude of more troubling air disaster than I can recall in a great deal of time, because... This constitutes an aircraft, essentially a, made, a modern airliner, breaking apart in flight. And since the sort of ill-fated comet that we know was poorly designed, I can't think of a situation of, of anything like this happening. And I wonder how much do we really know about these fly-by-wire machines. I mean, I saw, yes, they make... Oh, well, that's a good, quite, quite that's a, a bit question, because they've been around There have been a lot of aircraft over the years too. that have, have have developed um, previously unknown failure modes, Lockheed mm-hmm. Electra being uh, a very good example. Um, as, as James correctly notes, the original Comets um, were uh, uh, kind of the, the, uh, the poster child for uh, unintended consequences in aircraft design. But uh, you know, what, what is inevitable here is people are going to start thinking about the Airbus 300 that went down in late 01 when, uh, according to the NTSB, basically the, the first officer stepped, did a little two-step on the rudder pedals and snapped off the vertical stabilizer. Um, right here in people Queens. are going to pe- pe- right there in Queens. Yeah, uh, people are going to wonder if there's you know some kind of an issue uh, with Airbus aircraft that they can't really uh, handle. Um, um, I don't know adverse conditions or adverse handling or something like that. Punchline in any of this though is still we don't know. Right, and just, and just- at the stage of uh, this was this was early Monday morning North America time when this happened. And uh, actually, early Monday morning, Greenwich time, Universal time. This was late Sunday evening, uh, East Coast time, you know, yeah. North America time. And to yeah. add to the list of things we don't know, here it, is Wednesday, here it is Wednesday. We don't know jack, but, except what, uh, that the airplane's down and there's records all over the place. One of the what, things what we need to be what we need to be hoping to see happen. What we need to hope uh, for an accomplishment of is the recovery of the recovery. cockpit. Voice recorder and the flight mm-hmm. data recorder. Flight data recorder, in particular, is is you know a multi-channel machine that you know basically is going to have data on everything from the G loads on the airplane to the power output, the position of the throttles, so when, position so of control inputs, class, and control yeah. surface responses, and 
who flushed the, the first class head, you know, all that kind of stuff yeah. is going to be on. The- one of the stories I saw this afternoon um, very, very briefly alluded to the fact that uh, it was one of, I think it was an Air France person or someone high up involved uh, said that they haven't ruled out the possibility of foul play as well. Well, um, I thought they did. I, I th- thought I, I read think that they, they had. And it depends on who you talk to. And, and what one of the things that I'm, I'm given how little we know, how can they rule out together? Anything? One of the things I'm putting together out of, out of Air France and the French is they have absolutely no message discipline whatsoever. They, hmm. they've, they've got competing stories and competing uh, spokespeople saying things, and uh, they're not uh, – um, I don't know who's saying what to whom, and I don't know the names, but they're not doing themselves a lot of favors here. Uh, they need to start speaking with one voice and, and stop the contradictory statements. Yeah. Um, uh, at least I'm seeing them. I, I'm noticing them anyway. Right. Well, you've got to yeah, imagine that they're going to do everything humanly possible to find these recorders. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. So, they're in, they're uh, in like you know, 15,000 feet of water. pretty deep water. That's, yeah. that's just scary deep. Yeah. But, if, uh, this was, if this was my job on one of my old newspaper or magazine posts, uh, the linkage I'd be looking at hardest right now is purely circumstantial. But I would be looking at the weather conditions and the load testing and capability, not of the A330, but of the generic FAR 25 standard for transport well, category aircraft. That's next. If, if they do, in fact, find that um, – here's the punchline, though. I mean, the airplane would not have come apart if its loads had not been exceeded, okay? Well, exactly. The question is, how did its, how did its loads get exceeded? And were, was there a precipitating event? Was there a series of precipitating events? Um, were they weather-related? Were they mechanical-related? Were those they, they automation-related? The analysis yeah. that I'd be looking to get from uh, somebody credible and authoritative on this would be whether the air loads represented by the data that's available now, the air loads on an aircraft loaded at that weight and that speed, uh, be challenged by the sheer capabilities of, of vertical movement of the velocities that we're talking about out there. Uh, well, that's correct really, me if I'm wrong. Those are really huge velocity vectors yeah. to be feeling at that kind of altitude. But, the, you know, according to the satellite data and storm pictures, that's exactly what was happening out there. Correct me if I'm wrong, though, that transport category aircraft, the G-loading uh, certification standards are really actually lower than for um, uh, standard normal utility category aircraft. Uh, I think if you go look, I think if you go look at transport category uh, uh, load certification standards, I think you'll find that they actually lower. Uh, and, but that and doesn't. They're be, still, and they're, they're still tested <clears throat> to one and a half times the the limit. Right. But right. Yeah. It, it, you're you're filling in the backside of my point here, is yeah. that we, we're talking about the kind of air loads here, for which the aircraft was never envisioned to in, actually encounter, uh, and it, you know straight up and down those kind of air loads well, at that kind but, of altitude. But, but, but don't Dave, one of my. One of my one of my points is <clears throat> we don't know um, in what level of control the aircraft was in when it encountered this, these gusts and when it encountered the, the excessive loads. Was it upside down? Was it flying straight and level in normal cruise? 
what else was going on. It's well, it's well, inconceivable. It's in, it's inconceivable to me that a professional flight crew would fly into a thunderstorm on purpose, and they have all the tools, they have all I'm, the equipment, and they have all I'm, the training I'm, I'm to avoid all, I'm, doing. I'm not disputing any of those points. I'm giving you all those so, points. I, I understand. So I guess where I come from is that the, the the one of the focuses is going to need to be on you know what precipitated. If, in fact, they encountered uh, that kind of weather, what precipitated them encountering that kind of weather? Because no one in their right mind is going to fly into that kind of crap. Well, we're gonna- Nobody in their right mind is going to fly into that crap, but it, it's entirely within the realm of reality for that crap to grow up where you are without previous indication of being there. Yeah, We're going to get so the this, answers. We're going to start this from has to start zero I mean. When has there haven't been uh, an incident, an accident like this, has there actually uh, a major airliner encountered conditions and it broke apart in the sky? Yeah. Um, recently, there haven't there haven't been many. Let's put it that way. I think there the was a can- Japanese uh, seven forty seven. I think it was all Nippon Airways. Bulkhead, the pressure bulkhead. Pressure after, after pressure bulkhead yeah. uh, right. blue. Took the vertical stabilizer off, and they crashed like you know thirty, forty minutes later when they lost control. Um, the 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 Airbus in in Newark in in one is a I wouldn't call that well it, it kind of sort of is it is a major aircraft I mean air, airframe failure absolutely uh, it, it it supposedly was I mean according to the NTSB anyway it was it was pilot induced. Um, what are we going to find out about this this Airbus 330? What are we? I don't know. I don't yeah, know. a lot of questions here, and uh, and uh, when we get some answers, I'm sure we're going to talk about it some more. But uh, I think, Jack, we've- just to answer your question about the tourism, uh, the account that I read ruled it out because there's a 20 mile uh, fuel slick, and they felt that if a terrorist had brought it, it would have been with an explosive, and you would not see a. a you know, the fuel would have been consumed. I see. I see. Okay. That's a, that's a good point. Okay. That's a good point. But I, I, I think that the idea of terrorism is, is a really, a really a red herring. No one's claimed responsibility for any kind of anything mm-hmm. like this. And, you know, to my knowledge, uh, the French and the Brazilians haven't really been targeted by any terrorist organization. So okay. I wonder uh, what would have happened if there was a terrorist on board preparing to blow everybody up and suddenly they encounter this turbulence and the terrorist is like oh my god I'm going to die <laughs> so uh, it's the French the French in fairness the French have been targets uh, on their own in the past yeah. but it's not been a recent thing yeah. and Brazil's got more violence uh, more violent problems internally exactly than the exactly one, moving so. on but, moving on take a drink uh, on, a, on a much more positive uh, note I'll take um, another one a much more positive note. Dave, uh, we, we allowed him to exercise with his authority. <laughs> no, 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 no. I've been trying to exercise my authority for 10 minutes now. Uh, I mean, I just, I don't know. If, I was going to say I wore you out, but that's probably not true either. David, uh, good, news, good news out of Cirrus, huh? What's going on? David's taking a drink. Well, you know, that's the funny thing about the airplane business. Shock. Uh, usually the piston producers are the ones that start to see things evaporate ahead of everybody else then usually the piston producers are the ones that start to think see things float back up before everybody else during sun and fun that we were you know mentioning you know again a few minutes ago uh visiting with dale klepmeyer 
he mentioned that they were a few days away from announcing that they were about to double weekly production to six airplanes a week from three, where things had dropped down to. And they were going to be calling back people, and in fact, they did. Well, they're doing it again. Uh, they're going to eight a week now. From that six per week, they're calling back another 50-odd people up there, uh, mostly in the Duluth area. And this uh, kind of tickled my, wow, glass half full thing uh, bones because it's indicative of what we've seen in past economic recoveries. Uh, The piston business starts to pick back up slowly, and then the more business-oriented market that the the business turbine stuff starts to come along afterward. Uh, I'm already hearing signs, you know, vibrations from the turbine side that they're getting more inquiries and they're showing more airplanes. And it doesn't mean that the bottom has come in production cuts and layoffs because we're talking about, in a lot of cases, long lead time conversations. But... There's some sign out there, and Cirrus may be the leading edge of this starting to turn up. Uh, Also, uh, yesterday, a couple here named Weeby that we're familiar with, Dave Weeby in particular, uh, let it be known that they have bought the Kit Fox Light ultralight design and are going to be giving it a new name to keep it separate from the Kit Fox kit in LSA that was unveiled that's oh, okay. Fun. So it is something and else. They're going to be producing the ultralight here in the Wichita area. Cool. Cool. So things are... Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're just, uh, I think maybe, you know, this time next year, we may actually have some even better things to say about the aviation market. And the number of people on our forum site that have been talking about buying airplanes, using them to get their license, saying, you know... They, they they ran their own spreadsheets, and you know what? It, it, it really looks like it could be cheaper to buy an old beater of a 150, as, as, as Champ Guy recommends, or, you know, an old uh, Cherokee or 172. Uh, use that to get their license, keep it, maybe get it through their instrument rating, and then decide what they need next. Mm-hmm. So we're very encouraged that there, there, there's still interest in the world out there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a good thing. And now, again, we've said it before, we'll say it one more time. Now is a great time to buy an airplane. Prices are low, um, and fuel isn't all that expensive, all things considered. Right now, you know, I keep seeing spikes in, in, um, in uh, automotive gasoline prices. Um, well, but they haven't, they haven't filtered through, at least in my market, down to, to 100 low that. So I don't know what's going on. But, but, and, uh, and, and here's, a, here's a ringer for you. Talking about fuel. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't free to talk about this last time we were together, but I am now. Uh, Honeywell, which makes this neat little, uh, they call it a pocket MFD, uh, okay. the, 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 the aviator. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. it's a little GPS yeah. navigator. It'll get data mm-hmm. link weather with the right accessory. Uh, it does some marvelous things, touchscreen, all that. Their latest software update gives you access to a fuel finder function mm-hmm. to help you seek out the cheapest fuel mm-hmm. and you can update it monthly through their internet site if you update the uh, software in the uh, in the uh, aviator and I thought you know that and that's like a no charge function or no 99 bucks a year 
and you can update it as often as, as you need to, as often as the service does. But the service downloads it to the software on your aviator, and you can call it up when you're doing your flight planning. I thought it was a cool little upgrade. That is cool. Which, which data is it? Is it AirNav data? I don't remember, and I don't have the release in front of me. Yeah, I was going to ask that. So what, what services are collecting that data? Is there one that's sort of the definitive source for uh, price data around the country? Oh, oh man. Is it is it FBO.com and then AirNav, or I think, or, or it might not be FBO.com, but AirNav was, is kind of my go-to place for fuel prices. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they're they very don't good. Have a, they don't have a whole lot of handy applets, of which I'm aware. But AirNav's AirNav's data is user generated, right? It's they don't ha- they don't do a it's, survey. It's, it's oh, they don't do surveys. They don't do surveys. It's not so much user generated as it is vendor generated. Vendor generated. Okay, yeah. James, what were you going to say? The well, smart that, that, well, real real quickly, Jack. The, the smart vendors will update their fuel prices regularly. That's yeah, that's right. true. That's true. James, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that it is, you know, mostly vendor generated. Yeah. David, what's this other story? Uh, this other serious story about flood into known icing. I, I don't quite understand what what this is all about. Okay, uh, one of our listeners uh, who goes by Rollary, R O L E A R Y, posted a link to that we've got for you know with the show notes here uh to a cirrus website on uh dale Klapmeyer, one of the co-founders using the uh uh cirrus sr22 with approved flight into known icing system to get into jackson hole wyoming on a night that was out you know i'll say this right up front this is a balls out trip it is, you know, this is under that heading of don't try this at home with the caveat unless you've got a lot of time, a lot of confidence, and a lot of equipment. And this airplane had the equipment, including the approved flight into known icing system that's available on the Cirrus airplanes now. So the guy had the perspective by Garmin panel. Uh, he had the flight into known icing. He had IMC at about 12,000 feet of icing conditions to come down through yikes and way more than enough fluid in the system and all the redundancy you could, you could need backup fluid backup pumps uh a, a readout on the g1000 that showed you how much time was remaining on your icing fluid at the flow rate that you had set uh that's why we have a flight into known icing approval so that you can actually use it when you need to. I'll leave it to other people to debate whether a weekend away at Jackson Hall was the kind of use that they themselves would do. But once a fellow flyer from my same home airport questioned me about filing IFR and shooting an ILS to go to a pancake breakfast. Right. <laughs> and my answer to him was, well, i got to maintain currency somehow, and the food here is better than it is doing it under the hood. He didn't think that was funny. I thought it was freaking hilarious. <laughs> hey, uh, Jeb James, do you guys have uh, uh, de-ice on your airplanes? Um, I, have, I, have a, I have a warm pitot tube. Okay, James? I have a hot prop. 
So <laughs> they both sound dirty. <laughs> <laughs> Come here, baby. Let me show you my warm pedo too. I was going to say, happiness is a warm pedo. All right. Uh, would you? Would you? Copper, uh, an element that heats up on the uh, inner third of the propeller blade, and that that keeps the ice off, and then the outer portion spins fast, so that you don't have to uh, worry about ice. Right. But I think this is wonder if they don't clap my I mean, there you go, expressing confidence in his company's product. Uh, you can't get any better than that. That too. I did a, a story on this a couple months ago when uh, Cirrus got the certification. Um, it's, a, it's a good system. It's, it's TKS-based. Uh, it's not cheap. Um, it does have, you know, as as correctly pointed out, some redundancy. Uh, it has electrical power system redundancy. It has uh, fluid pump redundancy, um, and uh, you know, basically all the the big surfaces, the important surfaces of the airplane are covered, including the windshield, uh, as well as the prop and and uh, uh, the tail. Uh, it's it's a good system. Um, it's you know good of Cirrus to. Uh, um, to engineer this and, and uh, promote this uh, on their top-of-the-line aircraft. That doesn't mean we nilly-willy launch into icing conditions, though. Um, no. Yeah, no I mean, icing that's, that was sort of my question to you guys. Would you guys ever be comfortable flying into known icing? Um, known icing uh, certification gets you out of icing conditions. Uh, it's not okay. something that you use to get into icing conditions. Okay, I once filed knowing that the last 500 feet was going to be through icing conditions. But it was the last 500 feet. Uh, the ceiling was high, and I had lots of alternates. Uh, and I didn't have to worry about the ice until the last five miles of a 600-mile leg. How, how warm was it underneath? Uh, it was above freezing. Okay. That's all I need to know. Yeah, it was above freezing. <clears throat> and. And the funny thing is that it, it underneath that system, it had been above freezing for the entire leg, because I waited a day because of it. And I when, had a pre- when I when I first had the opportunity to launch, uh, it was VMC, but I was going to be IMC at at uh, twelve thousand, which I needed to clear terrain. I'm going to be at thirteen, maybe out of it, maybe not, but at the arrival end. The descent is going to be through eight thousand feet of icing. But wait, you're at IMC at twelve thousand. IMC at twelve thousand feet. We're going to be IMC at twelve thousand, and maybe, maybe not at thirteen. And what was the temperature expected to be up there? At twelve, thirteen thousand. Yeah. Oh, it was. It was well. You know, it was well into negative numbers. Well, I don't think it, it, it wasn't you know, warm enough. You're kind it wasn't of warm enough the- to thaw you out. Then you are essentially, you know, whether you know, no icing or not. You're that's icing condition, condition you know, right. right? Well, no visible moisture up there, uh, which was, you know, the the belief that you can only ice up invisible moisture. We know that to be a myth. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the 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 hook was I could get up there without going through the icing. I couldn't go down without at least eight thousand feet of icing. So that made it, think, that made it an easy no go decision. We well, ain't going I, 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 that was my that was my next question. Did you actually make that trip? Um, 
Not that day. I made yeah. it. I made was, it the day later when I had 500 feet of icing to deal with. Right. Right. How was it? I was if there's no visible moisture. I'm sorry. How was it IMC if there was no visible moisture? Well, there was a cloud layer at 12,000 feet down to about 500 feet above the ground. Oh, I see. So you were over that, and you were just going over that. I could get over that, but I couldn't come down without going uh through it. Yeah. So we just filed an I. You know, we looked at an IFR flight plan. That was going to, well, we weren't even 100% certain that we were going to be out of it at 13. That's just what we had from pilot reports that they got out of it at 12. It might have gotten better. It might have gotten worse. But the downside was at the end of about a four-hour leg, uh, the cloud layer was, by numerous pilot reports, uh, a good 8,000 feet thick. And people were icing up all the way down. Hmm. Uh, and the temperature on the ground was below freezing, and the ceiling on the ground was, depending on the airport reporting, 500 to 800. It's like, screw that. Yeah. I know where I got a place to stay, a good yeah, Mexican I was, restaurant I, nearby. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to go there in a car, much less an airplane. <laughs> uh, we set it down. Actually, didn't leave until after lunch the next day, waiting for the. Reports to get to the point where we had 500 feet or less of cloud to go through. I had a, uh, and uh, then it was brief. you know then it was pretty easy. I was in I was in icing conditions for 25 seconds maybe. I had a briefer. I thought she was going to put me in protective custody one day. I, I was <laughs> leaving a visit to Higdon's uh, in Wichita, and I was getting ready to fly back to uh, Manassas, Virginia. And I uh, got on the phone, and, and uh, there's an air mat, or maybe it was a SIGMAT, I don't remember, uh, for icing at my altitude just north of my course. But it wasn't forecast to come down towards my, my course, and, and it was pretty static. And, and okay, fine, I, I can dodge that with no, no issues. <laughs> but the, the briefer just went berserk. She says, you know, she basically says, you're going to die. <laughs> Did she really use those words? Right. <laughs> No, she didn't, but she came close to it. And, and the, the, the flight service station at Wichita is just down the street. She's like, why don't you come down here and let me show you this? Well, let me see this. It's the old days. I can see this on the screen here. Now, are we talking about this chart? And we're we talking about it was issued at such and such a time. And she says, yes. I said, ma'am, that's well north of my route of flight. Yeah, but you're going to die. You're going to die. And, <laughs> and it's the old I, I went on like this for like 10 minutes. You know? um, it was funny. I launched, flew the route, you know, I don't know, 11, 13,000 feet for like five hours. Yeah. Did you die? A trace of ice the whole way. Huh? That was a joke. Did you die? I guess not, huh? I didn't die. I didn't <laughs> die. Was this uh, Lockheed Martin or, or, or the FAA this was FAA, I believe. This was before the Lockheed Martin Oh, no, transition. this was definitely FAA. I remember. The, yes. Yeah, this yeah. was way before the changeover. Yeah. Uh, and uh-huh. the Wichita Flight Service got a lot of trainees. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, this, well, that explains a little bit. It was just funny. Yeah. More than anything, but uh, well, we, I don't know. We, we launched once knowing that 30 miles out, we were going to encounter a snow squall. And we were going to be in a snow squall for about 100 miles. But the airplane was below freezing, the air was below freezing, the snow was below freezing. And, you know, we went 100 miles and never picked up an iota 
of, yeah. of, of ice or frost. It was the damnedest thing watching the snow go by. Uh, a few months later, we're VMC, below freezing and almost 100% humidity, and the dew point's just a couple of points below that, even at our altitude. And we start picking up ice in clear air. To which we asked Kansas City for, you know, the uh, nearest location where the humidity Get me is. the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we did a 70-mile detour to Springfield Mo, where they the looked up for temperature you and dew point spread was about 13 degrees, and the dew point was so far below freezing, it wasn't funny. Well, it was yeah. really below freezing anyway. It, and uh, we went down there, took some fuel, found a different route, and got home. But it was the damnedest thing talking to uh, Kansas City Center, asking, you know, uh, about conditions south because we're picking up ice. And the guy says, are you invisible moisture? I went, no. He goes, because visible moisture is a no-no with this temperature. No. You're picking up ice in clear air? Yes. No, no, no. You're not supposed to be able to do that. Okay. Well, you come up here and tell Let's me that. Let's change seats. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, we got a great uh, off-field landing of the week this week. Uh, let's oh, see. man, isn't that cool? It is very cool. Let me just read the first couple paragraphs, and then you can elaborate a little bit here. Uh, oh, you can do it all. Top flight pilot training and a cool head made an amazing emergency landing, made for an amazing mer- emergency landing, when Megan Daly guided the two-seater airplane she was flying into a grassy Mills County field Monday afternoon. Daly is 17 years old. Uh, she's a licensed pilot. She was flying a Piper Tomahawk from Georgetown to Brownwood Regional Airport. Uh, and then it goes on to say split second thinking rather than panic was required as Daly watched the oil pressure go to nothing and the propeller slow down. Suddenly the plane began dropping. And uh, so it's, a, it's a great story. I won't read it all because there's a lot more to it. But uh, uh, she was apparently flying a buddy of hers who was going to take his uh, some sort of check ride. Or Yeah, who's uh, going to take his private pilot check ride? I could just see him calling up the, the, uh, the uh, check airman going, uh, hi, yeah, I'm going to be a little late. We're in a field where you had to do a dead stick landing. We've got that part down, okay? Put <laughs> yeah. it off BTS. <laughs> we did that. We did that. But, oh, i got to do this again the same week? Oh, come on. Yeah. So uh, this is just a terrific I, story. And, great. Uh, Fantastic. I am, just, I am just so impressed with this young lady. You know, Megan Daly, 17 years old, yeah. just graduated from high school, got her private pilot's license, She's given a high school buddy a lift to his check ride, and she's got to put one into a field dead stick. Girl, look at the pictures, whatever you fly in the future, I'm, I'm flying yep. behind you just fine. Yeah. Yep. Yep. If you look at the pictures here, too, the airplane is sitting in this field. I don't know what the crop is. It might just be grass, uh, high grass. It's sitting on its main gear. It looks like there's, it's undamaged. Um, there's... You know, the flaps are down, but, uh, you know, that's common. Uh, it's just sitting there in one piece. She did a great job. Yeah, very, yeah. very good. Congratulations to uh, to Megan. I wish Megan I'd have known about her before I filed a story recently. <laughs> she would have been a factor in that. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently this is uh, uh, this is Kansas, right, uh, David? This is, I didn't, from the story, I didn't. Abilene, Texas Texas. was the, yeah, Abilene, Texas. Abilene, Texas. Is there an Abilene in Kansas, too? Am I losing it here? Yeah, actually, there is. It's kind of confusing that way. Yeah, okay. 
Yet again, we've got another website that doesn't tell us where they early are. But uh, but in I, any event, I thought about that. They, they uh, yeah. oh, what was it? There was one one of the things here that kind of tipped me off. Maybe it was the Twitter. Never mind. Yeah, very I'm very just good. Kidding. Very very good. Never mind. I'm just kidding. Yeah, good good job, Megan. Come on the come on the podcast anytime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk to her on the podcast. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're reaching. You have accomplished something that guys have been flying all their freaking lives have never done. That's right, right. And and hope never to. And hope never to. Well, if you think about the terms of of of, uh, of Garp, okay. Yeah. All right, she's pretty disaster. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) She's got it covered. She's all done. Moving on to shout-outs. Uh, one administrative shout-out here. I just wanted to uh, say to folks um, who are wanting to use the forums, uh, we went through a little spam thing over the last few months, and we had to shut down forum new forum registrations for a little while, um, and we recently turned them back on. Uh, there's just a little bit of a trick to how you register for the forums now. Uh, you need to go through the regular registration process, and then once you've completed the regular registration process, and this is, by the way, explained in the as part of the registration process, but just in case it's not apparent. Once you've done the regular registration process, you then need to also send a very, very short email to podcastedoncontrolledairspace.com just kind of saying something. What I'm going for here is just tell us something about, you know, aviation, that I love the podcast. So we want to try and identify you as not being a spammer, someone who really knows what we're doing here. Um, and then that will trigger me to go in and activate the uh, the registration that you had just completed. So, uh, so in other words, you are personally, personally, kind of entering all the four members. That's no, per- well, fortunately, I'm not. That's what I was doing for a while, which was a big pain in the neck. All right, for a while, um, people would would send me an email saying, "I want to be in the forums. Please register." And I had to go through the process of registering them myself. And that's when I came up with this idea that they do most of the of the registration process, and then it's a feature of the forum software that 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 once you've registered, then it has to be approved by the moderator. The trick here is to figure out for me to, to see we get we we get about thirty new registrations a day that are spam that are just clearly attempted spammers. And so rather than me trying to figure out which ones are real and which ones are not, I'm asking real folks to also send me an email and uh, and just read closely the instructions, and you'll see this. Um, and then based on that email, I just go in and check a box, and it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really relatively painless. Um, and then final thought on this subject is I think I'm now caught up with everybody who kind of partially registered or you know registered before or whatnot. If you have tried to register for the forums and it's never been completed for one reason or another, please send an email to podcastedoncontrolledairspace.com um, alerting me to that fact, and we'll figure out where, what happened to your registration and, and get you in there. So uh, that's that's just a little bit of administrative stuff here. Uh, you guys got any other shout-outs? I've got one more, but I'll let you go next. I've got one, but go ahead. Now you go next, Jeb. Um this is to uh, this is in regards to a letter to the editor sent to the Warrington, Virginia newspaper. I forget the name of the newspaper, but we'll have a link to this in the show notes. It's um, the Fauquier Times Democrat. Thank you, um, Fauquier County, Virginia, Warrington, uh, Virginia. Um, this is a letter to the editor from um, a woman um, who has been watching uh, someone in a red plane doing acrobatics over um, the area where she lives. And instead of being irate and you're endangering my life and how dare you, um, 
the first line in the letter is, this is to tell the man in the red plane that he has a fan. <laughs> I've been watching you from the ground, from my farm pastures and yard. More often than you know, I am in awe of your skill, and the performance you give is wonderful and joyous. And that's just the opening two paragraphs. That's great. It's, it's, it's a full page of just um, someone who's apparently never flown a small plane before. Um, mm. Just talking about how she envisions the the romance of of being in a small airplane and flying it, um, not just in acrobatics, but just generally the freedom that you get. Uh, just an incredibly it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful letter. Yeah, it's it just an incredibly um, warm and adventurous uh, tone in this. It is the antithesis of the the kinds of letters that. Um, newspapers usually get about general aviation, and uh, I, anybody who just wants to, you know, kind of brighten their day, uh, should read this in its entirety. It's just very well done, and uh, um, I, 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 it's just uh, an eye opener, and, and makes me all kind of warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> general aviation does have some 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 future. <laughs> you better not let this woman know that you've got a heated pito. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what she looks like either. So, we'll <laughs> other shout-outs. What do you got? Okay, I got uh, two real quick and dirties. Okay. One of them's the kind of the antithesis of what Jeb was just pointing out, and that's from EAA Chapter Twelve Eighty Eight in Valkyria Air at El Valkyria Airport in Florida, uh, X-ray Five Niner, the General Daniel Chappie James Jr. Chapter. They've actually got a web page that explains. The not in my backyard syndrome or NIMBY, <laughs> which I think is apropos because the uh, uh, know nothings on a city council with no actual say or control in the issue are busy trying to ban flight schools after they tried to ban flight training flying, found out they couldn't do that. They're busy trying to ban aeronautical activity at X ray 5 Niner. And I think it wouldn't be a bad thing if all of us, I've, I've, I've sent one, uh, sent, an air, uh, sent a little email to the folks at the uh, uh, Valkyria Chapter 1288, or better yet, the city council there. I was thinking the city council, yeah. City council, well, I was thinking support for one and polite, what's the word I want, raspberries to the other, raspberries. and a warning of just how bad their idea is and how we'll stand up for that outfit across the country. That's my first little one. My second little one is a congratulations, welcome back, and come on our podcast to Randy Babbitt. Uh, I got to know Randy slightly on a somewhat regular basis when I was doing some investigative journalism about Eastern Airlines over 20 years ago. And he was a uh, uh, mover and shaker in the Airline Pilots Association Houston at Eastern, where he had grown up with his father flying for Eastern. Randy Babbitt, and, who just, by the way, happens to be the new administrator yeah, of the FAA. Yeah, he's the administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration, and this is our official standing anytime, any way, whatever it takes. We'd like you on our podcast, Randy, uh, because unlike so many past administrators, particularly Nothing against you, ladies. The last two. Mr. Babbitt actually knows how to fly. Now, 
that may seem like a, a slam dunk gimmick qualification to head the Federal Aviation Administration, but unfortunately we had two appointees in a row for whom aeronautical experience was a secondary consideration. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not going to weigh in with any judgments one way or the other, except that this gentleman knows it from the GA pilot's perspective, the airline pilot's perspective, the labor perspective, the administrative perspective. Oh, my God, what a rarity, a man who's <laughs> freaking qualified for the job. Do you, think that, do you think that one of the perks of that job is that you get left seat time in November 1? Oh, you think? <laughs> I think you get whatever left seat time you want, brother, as long as I was gonna you say, might say be training. Short, short of Air, one, short of Air Force two, One. My friend Kenny regularly flies. Yeah. He flies November 1 and November 2 both from time to time. There you go. There you go. Uh, so, Mr. Babbitt, it's been a long time since we exchanged words face-to-face, but I've never forgotten the support you gave me in some story work all those years ago. Uh there were such big fans of it that I got personally threatened by Frank Lorenzo. I think you and I share that. So we'd love to have you come on the podcast. Please, thank you. Bye-bye. James, you got a shout-out for us? I just wanted to thank everybody in the pilot community for St. Augustine for being so uh, nice and helpful while I was down there this uh, over the winter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when are you coming back down here, James, for a uh, period probably of time? Like, probably January. January. Yeah, we're going to all bump into each other in in a few well, more weeks, and uh, yeah. Well, we got that, but um, you know, and and now's a good time, folks. Um, here we are. It's early June, where where we sit. Only God knows when this episode will be posted, but uh, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <clears throat> and um, now Oshkosh is less than two months away, maybe six weeks. I had to look at a calendar. Um, now's a great time to be planning. Um, your trip to Oshkosh. Um, mm-hmm. Get the note if you're going to fly yourself in. Uh, you if go. not, um, um, you need to check out the EAA's websites for a variety of different stuff. There's a whole new layout to the showgrounds. Um, there's uh, even uh, some some applets or widgets that you can you can use to uh, uh, find the exhibitors on the site using your uh, mobile phone or using uh, an iPhone. Control uh, for a ride on the ride yeah. share board. Um, there's there's all kinds of resources available out there to help you get uh, spooled up and uh, get you to Oshkosh. And once you're there, find your way around. Uh, but now's a, now's a good time to do the research, and now's a great time to be making plans to get there. That's right. That's all I'm going to say. on advanced tickets through June 15 if you buy them online. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, there you go. So uh, we'll be looking for you. That's right. We'll be there. Going to be a great show. A lot of interesting uh, things this year. Yeah, and and one other thing, don't forget this year. I think it's November. AOPA's. I don't know what they're going to call it this year, but their big annual wing ding this year in Tampa. Just yeah, I think they call it like what Aviation Showcase or something like that. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah it's changing the name. Anyways, they're still, they're still calling it an Expo. I thought they were calling it something else. No, I think they changed no, the name. They're calling it something else. Yeah, something else. Yeah. Anyways, okay, make a little note here to myself. Edit out all of Jeb's participation in this episode. (laughs) Hey, James Winbrand. I thought you had that on a sticky on your monitor. Yeah, James Winbrand is an an author and an aviation journalist and a musician. And, uh, hey, James, we need to talk about a – we need a UCAP blues song this summer, huh? Oh, that'd be great. We need to to have a conversation about that. We need a little brainstorming session here. And – Thank you. Uh, Go ahead. 
Well, a, a CD of, a, of a, a group that I was in a long time ago, that was quite popular in the New York area, was released recently, and it's it's quite nice and and sort of. Uh, Nice comments on it for like Debbie Harry of Blondie and Tommy Ramone and the Ramones and Lenny K from the Patty Smith group about how great it was to hear his stuff after all this. Year. So it's kind of neat. That's very cool. Is that available to the public? How can we get one of those? Yes, it's on iTunes. It's on all the stuff. The band is called the Miamis. The the Miamis, like the city? Yes. Yes, like the city. Oh, cool. We're going to have to track and that down. All this, all, yeah. uh, various studio recordings and, and demos and stuff from, year, from years ago. Very, very cool. They held up pretty decently. Very, very cool. So you still have no uh, official web presence on the web, right? You don't have a website or anything like that, right? Uh, no, no, I don't. <laughs> it's going to have to work that way. We just got Jeb back on the web. We don't have to get you on the web. But in the meantime, you can Google his name or you can search for him on Amazon and apparently in iTunes now. So very cool. Very cool. Hey, Jeb Burnside is uh, an aviation journalist uh, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? AviationSafetyMagazine.com is my day job. Uh, My personal website, yay, Uh, (laughs) JEBurnside.com. And um, uh, that video that I uh, I mentioned earlier that we just finally finished up is going to be on AvWeb sometime soon. Great. Great. We'll be looking for that. We'll be looking for that. Excellent. I'll have my place staked out. Yeah. Dave Higdon yeah, is sure. an aviation photographer and also an aviation journalist. He's a U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, AEA.net, uh, DaveHigdon.biz. And before I lose it, it's the AOPA Aviation Summit coming right. to Tampa, November 5, 6, 7. Uh, I think some of us will be there for that, too. Uh-huh. Uh, it's promising to be quite a departure from the past. Yeah. At any rate, uh, come see us on the forums. That's right. All That's right. right. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn a little bit more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. As always, a big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Also, thanks to uh, the many of our listeners, and particularly to Royce Earl and Mike Morgan for the show opening disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. And don't forget that you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, you can check out the wiki, the airport restaurants list, the aviation movies list, and more. All of that at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Live longer and fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right. Well, that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Yeah. TTFM. TTFM.